Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. In today's episode, we focus on Iran. First, John talks with Ambassador Wendy Sherman about her experiences of negotiating with Iranians. Next, John, Amber, and I have a chat about Iran's soft power strategy in the Middle East. Then, we hear how religious eulogists in Iran are trying to reach new audiences. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. We are here with Ambassador Wendy Sherman, former Undersecretary of State and author about a year ago of a book called Not for the Faint of Heart, Lessons in Courage, Power, and Persistence. Wendy, welcome to Babel. Thank you. Delighted to be with you, John, always. You are one of the few people, I think, in the world who's had the experience of negotiating not only just with the Iranians, but also with the North Koreans. What's really distinctive about the way Iranians approach negotiations? Is it similar to or different from the way the North Koreans do? I guess it's a privilege to have been able to do both. I'm not quite sure ever how to describe uh, working with those two countries, but it's been a privilege to serve my country, that is for sure. North Korea is very transactional. They are a hermit kingdom. They are cut off, had, and certainly were even more cut off from the rest of the world at the time I negotiated with them. Iran is a country that is connected to the rest of the world. They trade with many people around the world. They have presence in other parts of the world. North Koreans have presence in other parts of the world, but it's usually a criminal conduct to get money or to sell their technology to other people. The Iranians have an economy. They have a country. They have a large middle class, at least a consumer class. They're virtually 100% literate. So it's a very different animal. At the time that I negotiated with the Iranians, they're very litigious, uh, very legally, legalistically oriented. They argue over every single word. They are also broad negotiators. They are three-dimensional negotiators. They see everything that's on the playing field and everything that's outside the room as well as inside the room. So they're very sophisticated. Did you feel that with the Iranians and North Koreans, when they told you something, you could trust it or... Was there a a sense that you had to even fight over the facts? I don't think negotiations are really ever about trust. Mm -hmm. They may be about respect and respecting the interests and the actions of the other side. Uh, But I don't think any uh, negotiation, particularly in the arms control arena, probably in every arena, uh, must have verification and monitoring. uh, Because I think you need to have an enforcement mechanism. You need to be sure that you're going to get what you've agreed to get. Did you trust them when they said, this is what our position is, this is what my government will allow, or is it not even necessary to trust on that? Again, I don't think it's about trust. It's about respect. And we all come into a room with positions. uh, And I think what we've learned in negotiations is that you really understand the other side's interests. Uh, Because if you just stick with positions, they're going to say, the sky is blue and you're going to say the sky is green and you can't find any place in between. But if you know that their interest is to maintain some dignity and your interest is to make sure that dignity doesn't include a nuclear weapon, you have a larger playing field. You write in the book about several times the Iranians seemed at the very last minute to 
pull back, that you thought you had something, and and just as you're about to move forward, it's up. Oh, that doesn't really. Work. Can, <laughs> can you can you describe how that how that played out? Yeah, I would say it's a Iranian technique, which is ask for one more thing. Always, uh, they did that at the very end of the deal uh, because of their need to be able to go back to Tehran and said they got the last ounce. And so one should always hold something in your pocket because you know that's going to happen. And who cares if they're the one to get the last quote-unquote concession, so to speak, if it's something you were holding in your pocket and were ready to give away under any circumstances. So I think you, it's part of understanding culture, norms, and history. I'm going to teach a course here at the Harvard Kennedy School later in this semester called Away from the Table, Everything You Really Need to Know to Get the Job Done. And one of the modules in that course is about culture, history, and norms. Because if you don't understand the context, if you don't understand the style, if you don't understand how they approach negotiations in general, uh, you're not going to succeed. I would imagine you also, by this point, can make those hotel espresso machines work, which have always been a challenge to me. <laughs> Yes, I did. Uh, you know, we did a lot of these negotiations in uh, Vienna. Vienna is known for its coffee, but they are all those espresso one cup at a time pods. As, as you think back to the Iran negotiations, went over many months, many rounds. What was the hardest decision you felt you personally had to make? I mean, not something you passed on to the White House for them to, to make a judgment, but you're in the room leading the American team. What was the hardest moment where you had to make a call? Oh, it was probably the one at the very end when we had all agreed that the UN Security Council resolution would be the last substantive thing to be negotiated because the Russians and the Chinese didn't want any limits on arms sales or on missile testing. And we certainly did, and our European colleagues did. And we knew that if we got toward the end of the deal, that we'd all have to find a way forward. And it was a very conscious decision by all of the partners. The United States has always held the pen on the Iran negotiations and resolutions at the UN, and even though the UN Security Council resolution was not part of the JCPOA per se, it had to be rewritten because it had to supersede previous resolutions because of the JCPOA. Mm -hmm. And so it came down to a bilateral negotiation between the United States and Iran. And it was on day 25 of what turned out to be 27 days of a negotiation, staying in the Palais Coburg, at which I had only one meal in those 27 days outside of the hotel. It was down to sort of the last details, the last numbers in the agreement. The rest of the resolution had been drafted and written and uh, had been consulted with all of the P5 plus one and Iran, and we were down to for how many years the arms embargo would stay on, how many years the missile restrictions would stay on. And I put a couple of formulas on the table. It was just me and Rob Malley, who was my uh, second and fantastic, fantastic colleague, and Abbas Arachi and Majid Ravanchi, our counterparts. We were around the dining room table in the evening after dinner, and I put a piece of paper in the middle of the table that I'd handwritten a couple of possible formulas, and a boss who was in the lead for this said, okay, I think this will work. And I thought, this is fantastic. We're actually going to get to the end of this. Then he did what uh, we talked about previously. He leaned forward and he said, but just one more thing. 
I lost it because I was supposed to come to Harvard as a fellow in 2015, and I knew I was never going to get here on time because we still had to go back to Congress if we got this deal done. And I committed to stay through the review process, of course, and see this to the end. I just lost it. They hadn't seen me yell, but I yelled. And it was, and it was a difficult moment because when I get angry, when I was somewhere along the line, probably because I'm a woman, I learned I couldn't get angry, but I could cry. So I just started sobbing as I was yelling at them. I felt for Rob because he didn't know what he was supposed to do with me then. <laughs> Abbas and Majid were dumbfounded for a moment, but it was very important for me to be that tough and say enough's enough. They were putting the entire deal at risk and the security of our country at risk. Boss, after what seemed like an interminable time, but probably was not very much, leaned forward again and said, okay, we're done. And when I tell this story, I say, I never want to suggest that people should take crying as a tactic, but rather we are who we are and you're most powerful when you are your most authentic self and when you bring it all to the table. In that moment, I certainly brought it all to the table, and uh, it got us to a resolution. And why did it still take a couple of days after that before you could go home? Well, so that was at night. Everything had to be put together. Ministers had to meet and agree that what we had come to was appropriate. There was, uh, and Iran had to say yes to the whole deal. That takes time because you have to consult back in governments. It was very hard, I think, for Zarif to finally say yes. You can read in John Kerry's book and in my book a little bit about what that last scene was like in John Kerry's suite at the Palais Cobor. He was on crutches at the time because of a broken femur and used a crutch to uh, keep uh, uh, Zarif from leaving the room. <laughs> but ultimately, we held one tiny little thing still in our pocket, which uh, Zarif uh, said he needed one more thing in Again, oh, we anticipated that. The deal was done. The ministers met. Everyone came to an agreement. And some of us spent all night going over every single word in the agreement, making sure that what we all had agreed to, in fact, is what was, was written there. Every single one of the uh, delegations had to read through the entire document and make sure any corrections were made that were necessary. That took all night long. And then finally, at about 4 or 5 in the morning, turned out to be Bastille Day, all of the ministers met at the U.S. facilities in Vienna across the river. So it was a neutral setting, and we agreed. Right. One of the things that has struck me in the last several months is just how much vilification there is, especially in the, the Trump administration, of Javad Zarif personally. You've worked a lot with Javad Zarif. What do you think they most object to? And what do you think they don't understand about him as a diplomat, as a negotiator? I cannot begin to read the mind of either the current president of the United States or his administration. I think that, quite frankly, they don't have a well-thought-through strategy about how they're dealing with Iran. But strategy aside, it feels that this is especially personal, that there's a special... Yes. Why? Well, I think because I think, you know, this is part of any buddy but Obama approach by the administration. Javad Zarif was the negotiator with John Kerry of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. So how can he possibly be the Trump negotiator or the Pompeo negotiator? So I think it is partly that. 
I think the administration is just looking for whatever targets they can find. It really doesn't make any sense, quite frankly, because Zarif lived in this country for 30 years. He does understand us. He does know our media. He does know the deal. He does know the details of the deal. I will say that for the Iranians. They know every single little last bit of everything that is coming to the table. Very smart. He has had the baton from both President Rouhani and from the Supreme Leader. He has a relationship with the Supreme Leader to sort of say this isn't going to be about Javad Zarif weakens him in his efforts to maintain the diplomacy as the best course here as opposed to war and doesn't seem to serve our needs. But I think it is part of this. Anything that had to do with what Obama did is going to be different than what I, Donald Trump, am going to do. So you think it's personal about Obama rather than personal about Zarif? Well, it may be about Zarif as well, because Zarif has been very active in the press. He's very active as a diplomat. No doubt that irritates the administration. Do you think he lied to you? Oh, I'm sure there were times when he told me things that were not true. <laughs> I'm sure. But, you know, that happens in our day-to-day deliberations with even people we love. It's not so much lie. They may not tell the whole truth. Right. Or they may shade the truth, or they may spin the truth. So I'm not sure it was out-and-out lying at times, but certainly a lot of spin, shading, this can never happen, what was me, when in fact I knew there was more space uh, than it appeared to be. Wendy, thank you very much for sharing your experience and insights with us. I appreciate it, and thank you for joining us on Babel. Thank you very much. Next up, we talk about another aspect of Iran's engagements in the Middle East. Iranian force in the region has many components. One is regular military force that seems to have been used against uh, Abkhaz in the Khores field in Saudi Arabia uh, in September. There's the paramilitary forces and, and the proxies that, that Iran supports throughout the region. And then there's a more vague soft power, a sort of cultural power that Iran uses, particularly in Shia communities, but not only Shia communities, uh, in countries ranging from Lebanon, Syria, Yemen, Iraq, and elsewhere. It's interesting that not only has Iran tried to reach into societies, but in many ways they've tried to replicate some of these institutions that the United States tried to create to win over hearts and minds in the Middle East in the 19th and 20th century. We have universities, we have hospitals, and Iran is trying to replicate a lot of those same institutions. It's about attracting people to to a model, right? So it's about um, rather than coercing other people to to fall in line, it's about showing them the benefits of it. Um, and as someone from the UK myself, I came here as a graduate student, and, and and in some ways that's part of it. The people to people exchanges, having a chance to see what life is like, um, is is a very powerful way of of convincing them of. And I hope you found us lovable. <laughs> You're still here, indeed. <laughs> And we're seeing this across a variety of areas, right? So it's charities, it's you know hospitals, it's schools, it's religious institutions, it's television programming and radio programming. It's not one avenue. When you look at soft power, the best way to do it is through a variety of streams in hopes of slowly introducing people to your culture. And Iran's doing that in a lot of places in the Middle East. One Iranian soft power initiative that we see in Iraq and in Lebanon 
is the Imam Khomeini Relief Committee. It's one of the most important committees. It's a charity that works with orphans, with the disabled, with the elderly in these communities um, to provide services and provide for their basic needs. Definitely. It's, I think it's about adding a strategic depth to their engagement with some of these countries in the very, in, in, in the most broad sense, making people more pro-Iran. But it really, you know, one of the interesting things about Iranian soft power is they've had hard times getting outside of Shia communities. I mean, they can, they can sort of help co-religionists, but in some ways, the more consolidated the Shia community becomes under Iranian tutelage, the more it creates hostility, aversion to the Shia community, the more it drives sectarianism in the region because of a sense that not only is this another community, but it's a threat. It's a community on the move. For Shia communities who felt oppressed, it's relief. But for other communities who arguably have either been oppressing the Shia or just weren't worried about the Shia or worried about Shia domination, we're seeing that a lot in Lebanon, as you know. Actually, I think a really interesting um, example of Iranian soft power is a museum I think Will's actually been to. So in Lebanon, there's a museum um, called Melita, which uh, was funded by Iran, and it's right up in the mountains um, south of, of Beirut. And it's a resistance museum. It's, it's a museum designed to talk about the fight against Israel and the, the pro-Palestine struggle. Um, and they clearly spent a lot of money on it. They, it's, it's as a museum, it is very well done. There are interactive displays. There are tour guides who are very happy to show you around. Um, this is, I think, just one way that they're trying to spread messaging um, on the education side. So as well as the the language training and 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 um, and universities and things like that, also a museum which is um, potentially going to reach a, a broader uh, cross section of people. Who were the visitors the day you were there? The day I was there, it was mainly uh, Lebanese people. There were definitely some foreign tourists like myself who were who were looking around. But I would say um, there were a lot of, of Lebanese um, Palestinians as well, um, Palestinian refugees living in, in Lebanon, I assume. Um, I would say they were maybe from the lower socioeconomic classes and, and, and lots went as a family day out. Um, there were big groups together with babies and yeah. I think one interesting parallel to the United States, you know, soft power initiatives, the United States has invested in um, the American University in Beirut, the American University in Cairo. We're seeing Iran invest in a lot of universities and schools. So there's um, the Islamic Azad universities opening, I think, in, across uh, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. Um, and it promotes also this resistance ideology. I was shocked when I was in Lebanon and I was on a, a tour with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. We went out through the Bekaa Valley to the Syrian border. <clears throat> and the number of different universities that each political party was associated with, and the parties associated with the Iranians had their own universities, and the parties associated with the Sunnis had their own universities. And it was strange because one of the distinguishing features was you could tell who was supporting a university by how the, the graduates were dressed. And they had people in graduation gowns. And some of the women had different kinds of veils. And some of them had men and women together. And all these things that you could figure out the politics of the university sponsored by a foreign power, by the imagery that the university used to advertise for students in billboard, billboards on the road. I think it's interesting to to look at what they're doing in Syria as well. So around Damascus, 
they're literally displacing people, especially from Sunni majority communities, and buying up land, especially around the Sayyid Zainab Mosque, which is is a holy site in in, in Shia Islam. But they're really buying up a lot of land around there and, and displacing these people who are less predisposed to feeling an affinity with Iran. But at the same time, in eastern Syria, they're trying to reach out to Sunni populations and they're trying to work through some of the tribal networks and and providing services. Um, they're building schools and providing stipends for Syrian students to go there. But Will, what's the scale of that in Syria? It's, it's a small scale, but they're laying the groundwork, I think, for a really longer term presence. I think we wouldn't see them building these schools if they didn't think this was an important way for them to be to be investing in Syria. And the fact that right now they're clearly struggling economically and yet they still think this is an important use of their money, I, I think that's instructive for their, their regional yeah, I mean, strategy. I mean, I say, but what, what strikes me is in many ways this is taking out of the U.S. playbook things we have been doing for more than a century, trying to, to encourage economic growth. I think the difference, frankly, that I see is that the U.S. is trying to create fair-minded institutions and rule of law in a place where everybody can play equally. The Iranians often take cheap shortcuts and they support groups that don't play by the rules, groups that sometimes have thugs and they intimidate, and they're trying to grab things. And the excuse is, well, we're dealing with underprivileged populations and, and we don't have all the money and time to play by the rules. But it seems to me that, that there are some ways in which the U.S.-Iran are working in parallel and there are some ways in which the U.S. is trying to set up rules, and Iran has proxies, clients, people they work with, who have their own set of rules and, and look askance at the American rules, look askance at the international rules. And I think that has implications for, for how well the society works for everybody, not just people who are working with the Iranians. Absolutely. And, and I think as the there's a lot of talk in, in in the U.S. policy community at the moment about limiting U.S. interventions and being more selective about how the United States engages in the region. And, and I think, as you say, um, John, I think a, a lot of uh, the, the U.S. has engaged and spent a lot on, on these soft power um, strategies over the last decades. And I think it would be a mistake to to, to cut out those and, and, and not see the value in them because it, it creates even more opportunities for countries like Iran and, and adversaries. And even looking at Iran's current soft power initiatives, I mean, that might highlight missed opportunities for the United States. Those might be areas in which we can continue to grow U.S. soft power so that Iran doesn't have that opportunity. Up next, a meze about religious eulogists in Iran. Sitting on a brightly lit stage, a man belts out an emotional song with a catchy tune. Before him, all packed with sweating topless men echoes as they slap their chests in rhythm with the beat. This is no disco. It is an Islamic center in the heart of Tehran. Shiite eulogists who sing to commemorate the sacrifices of the Prophet Muhammad's family are known in Iran as Madez. In early Islam, Shiite imams encouraged their followers to deliver eulogies, or medahi, for their predecessors. Over 
time, the function and style of Medahi changed, and they have become more political and more modern. During the Iranian Revolution, for example, some Medahi told stories about how the public rose up against incompetent caliphs. During the Iran-Iraq War, songs were called the heroic feats of the Shiite martyr Imam Hussein in an attempt to mobilize troops to fight Iraq's Saddam Hussein. More recently, some Medahs explore the path charted by Christian rock in the United States. In an effort to reach broader and younger audiences, they are also borrowing lyrics and rhythmic structures from Iranian pop music. The strategy seems to be working. Some Medaz have become famous and their videos attract over a million views. But the move is not without controversy. While Medahi are supposed to be addressed to Shiite martyrs, some appear to extol women. For example, one song addressed to Imam Hussein includes the lyrics, Every night I call you. If you don't answer, I'll text you until you say something. Imam Hussein or a girl? The latter seems more likely to text him back. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.